Hi everyone, this is Hita Unnikrishnan for the In Common Podcast, a show that explores the careers and research of academics and practitioners studying relationships between humans and the environment. Today, Michael and I are in conversation with Aarti Kumar Rao, who describes herself as a chronicler of landscapes, of both biodiversity as well as livelihoods, and who uses all the storytelling tools she has at her disposal, from photographs to writing to sketching. She is based out of Bengaluru in India. I first met Aarti around 2012 when she accompanied me to document stories around the urban lakes of Bengaluru that I was also working with at the time. Since then I've been following some of the incredible work she has been doing and the stories that she's been collecting of lives, livelihoods and landscape change across India and elsewhere. Today we talk about how she got involved in chronicling stories and some of the stories that have stayed with her over the years giving her both hope as well as despair. She describes a rainwater harvesting practice called khadin that exists among the shepherds of the deep thar desert a practice that is rooted in the region's agrarian histories we speak about the hubris inherent to academia as well as the need to break free of silos and encourage conversations that bring together social as well as scientific narratives about a landscape while keeping them inclusive of the people who experience it intimately on an everyday basis We speak about feeling the land with all of one's senses and how that is different from zooming across it in a vehicle further linking those ideas to the privilege that comes from being the other who studies people and livelihoods with the freedom of leaving that landscape and going back to the privileged lifestyles we originally occupy yet with the recognition that we are not separate from anything that's happening around us in the world We end with a discussion on the multi-layered and deep-rooted patriarchy that a woman encounters when leading a traveler's lifestyle both from within the community she engages with as well as the community that she comes back to Michael and I really love the passion that came through in Aarti's words both for the people whose story she represents as well as the landscapes she studies and we hope that all of you find this episode as interesting as we found our conversation with her to be Hey Aarti thanks for joining us. Pleasure small mind. Yeah thank you. I think I'll just begin with one of these very uh, I mean these questions that I don't have an answer to myself which is uh, I was looking at your work uh, you described variously as an environmental photographer an environmental journalist and an explorer an environmental explorer. So just wanted to ask you what do you describe yourself as? gosh this this question always stumps me it always stumps me i even wrote a little poem on how i do not do not really fit <laughs> i do not fit into any of these boxes very neatly um i kind of am messy and i kind of smudge all over the place and smear myself across these boxes um so yeah i think i think the only way i would describe myself is as as a chronicler so i just you know uh chronicle uh stories about the land uh and how landscapes are changing uh and how and what effect those those landscapes are having on the people that depend upon them people and uh creatures that depend upon them so both the biodiversity and the um the livelihood of local communities uh so, and and I use whatever tools to tell these stories that i feel is appropriate for that part of the story so it could be photography it could be words it could be video art sound soundscapes are amazing so yeah i just i just use a variety of these tools so i'm not 
when people call me a photographer, I cringe. When they call me a writer, I cringe, you know, so it's, it's, it's one of those strange things. I'm everything and nothing at the same time. Yeah, so that kind of leads me to the other question I had really. How did you get involved in this and, um, and uh, what drove you towards this whole idea of chronicling stories of landscapes? I'm not going to use the word photographer. <laughs> when I was when I was a kid, um, I was always torn between uh, wanting to study the sciences versus uh, the humanities. And in that time, at that time in India, you couldn't do both, so you had to choose. I, maybe it's the same still. I don't know, but <laughs> in India, it was always. And so I was kind of really torn. So I, I ended up doing a master's in physics, but. Um, literature and writing was never far behind. And I've always, always loved to write and, um, and shoot and draw. So it's, it's always been part of me. All of these things have been part of me. Um, and I think it was uh, probably when I was in the very late teens, early twenties, that there was this uh, series that National Geographic did called the Mega Transect, where Michael Fay uh, walked across um, the Congo um, and uh, and documented, he, so he, he uh, the guy who walked with him was David Quimen and um, and uh, uh, Mike Nichols was the photographer and they documented this mega transect, and I was just I was so taken in by you know that kind of storytelling where you do it slow and you you walk you don't use uh, you know motorized transport you use you move at the human pace of life. And that really stuck with me. And I've always, ever since, wanted to, so this was early 90s, um, I've always wanted to do um, stories about the land like that. So slowly, you know, moving through the land very slowly. Um, and so that kind of stuck with me, but then I kind of lost my way. I did a lot of things. I worked in the corporate world for 10 years, 10 very long years. And um, until I finally said, no, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to what I really wanted to do always. And I quit um, in 2012. I finally, you know, weaned myself away from all corporate work and, uh, and jumped headlong into this, which is storytelling uh, about environment and about the land. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Is that, I mean, 2012, 2011 was when I met you as well, right? I mean, that's right. That was just when I was getting my feet wet. And we did a lot of that. It was so interesting, the stuff which you guys were working on then, uh, the, the commons here in, in Bangalore. So yeah, you know, that's, uh, and those things were all, you know, me, me just trying to find my way through what you know, making making contacts and you guys, I stood on your shoulders really. I and I'm indebted to the scientists that I've worked with, the wildlife biologists that I've worked with, because it's really on your shoulders that uh, that my work is based on. I stand on and my work is based on. Thanks. Uh, yeah, good to know that we have helped someone at least. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, I was as kind of also thinking about about the work that you've done I remember I think later on I think in 2018 or something uh we were we I think Manjunath who was our research associate associate called us to this lake in Bangalore and we were photographing yes. that that ritual where women sort of light lamps on the lake yes um, yes in hope for the Chat Puja the Chat, the Chat Puja, Puja exactly for yeah. Yeah. for what whatever it is that they ask uh blessing for mostly uh, good husband or whatever and then I was looking at 
the photographs you've taken and, and they seem to build a sort of narrative, something that at least to me, it evoked a sense of nostalgia about lost waterscapes. Um, and then I, I was looking at your work earlier on and you've been doing the same thing with the Brahmaputra. Um, and uh, some of it, I also read the blog, I think about the Thai spiritual practices that you had. Um, and then I was just wondering, as, as a chronicler, how is it that, or what, what are the discourses that you sort of want to convey through your project? Yes. It, you know, it started, it started uh, in 2013 when I, uh, I decided to, to start telling stories about fresh water. Uh, it meant a lot to me. Uh, river systems have always meant a lot to me. I've grown up with, you know, uh, raucous debates at home about large dams. My dad was staunchly against it. I had uncles who worked at the World Bank who were staunchly for it. And so, you know, these kinds of it really, it, it got quite ugly sometimes, frankly. But anyway, I grew up with those debates. So when I decided to, uh, to do environmental storytelling, I kind of knew that I wanted to work around freshwater and stories. And um, uh, fre sorry, freshwater and rivers, and tell those stories. Uh, and, and I wasn't quite sure how I wanted to do it. And it, I started in a very funny place, given that that's what I wanted to do. I started in the desert and I spent a whole year and plus um, documenting a beautiful, you know, old ancient rainwater harvesting technique that the, the deep tar dead desert dwellers have, which has kept them drought free for years. And so, um, you know, it's, I realized that was my introduction to, to long form visual narratives as well as long form storytelling. And I realized that such stories are slow burn. You know, a lot of these stories are slow burn. They're not dip in, dip out. You really don't get the full picture in, um, in a single uh, visit, maybe, even if you spend time, like, you know, whatever, you, a typical story is given, what, two weeks a month, and um, you really don't get the sense of uh, what's going on. And I realized that what I wanted to do through my work and what I wanted to convey was that, was how important it is to follow um, lifelines in a landscape, a landscape's lifeline also, uh, over time, um, across seasons, across years and uh, not be lulled into uh, believing that what you see as a snapshot is the whole story. And it's something that I learned every single time I went into field that I was not seeing the whole story. Every time I came back with slightly different, uh, a slightly different viewpoint or a completely different viewpoint. And, and so I realized that, um, you know, it's going to take time for me to tell these stories of landscapes. But I also realized that while I started off wanting to tell stories about freshwater, freshwater intersects all areas of our life, you know, from culture to public health, to, um, to water security, to agriculture, everything, right? Industry, everything. And, um, and I realized that everything was interconnected. And so when, you know, uh, you disturb or disrupt any one part of it, uh, you find a, a cascading effect, you know, spatially, uh, uh, removed as well as temporally removed. And so, you know, 
it was a crash course in understanding how land works, how hydrology might work. And, uh, and again, I had amazing um, advisors uh, along the way who, who could, you know, kind of handhold me and, and teach me these things. But really, I want that thing to come across in, um, through my work where, you know, I want people to realize that what we do today could have repercussions, not just tomorrow, but 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down as well. And these are cumulative effects and it can be pretty devastating. And we need to similarly listen to, um, to the, the signals that the land is giving us today and, uh, and start acting upon it because you know, it's going to build up. And, uh, and if you don't listen to those very quiet, they're very small, they're small perturbations. They're not large, they're not um, you know, explosive stories. These are not some things which you can go and you know, immediately take a picture uh, you know, of, or, or make a story of one event. It's not event driven at all. It's so imperceptible. Um, so, you know, spend time, but pay attention to these quieter stories, these slow burn stories, um, so that I can maybe connect the dots and be able to semaphore what might lie ahead for us. Um, and, and also look back and see why we are where we are today. What was, what was something that happened, say, 50 years ago that's, that we should have listened to and we didn't, and what's happening as a result of that? So, yeah, long answer to your question. Uh, no, I just wanted to hear some stories then. Uh, what is some of the stories that have stayed with you? Uh... Um, good Lord, every one of them, you know, uh, and they build upon, <laughs> one thing builds upon the other. And, and I think uh, the single most, um, what should I say, uh, representative, not really, but, uh, you know, kind of, it's, it's like a lesson that I learned uh, was was came in 2015 when I visited uh, Faraka, which is on the Ganga. It's a it's a barrage, a dam on the Ganga in West Bengal, and uh, and saw firsthand what that one structure has done, 400 kilometers upstream and 400 kilometers downstream, and I think that is the one terrible, terrible, terrible like bad news, bad news, everywhere bad news story that stuck with me. And then of course, the second one, which I would just say is something is that's my, it's my heartwarming, uh, beautiful go-to whenever I feel like, um, you know, I'm, I'm too low and down is the story from the desert where uh, the, the shepherds um, who live there are part-time farmers and completely rain-fed agriculture in the deep tar. They know exactly where to farm and how to farm. And this is like a seven or 800 year old practice and uh, resurrected after all these years by a few dedicated individuals and, um, and now spreading across the, the district and people have taken it up and they've gone from begging because of droughts to um, earning uh, millions of uh, rupees uh, thanks, to, thanks to this kind of agriculture. So um, those two stories I think were, are, are kind of, they kind of define my, um, my education, I would say, um, in, in storytelling and how, how to approach something like this because um, yeah, it, it's not localized. None of these effects are, or these stories are localized. They have repercussions far and wide. So, yeah, those are I, the two. Yeah, you mentioned the Thar story, and uh, could you uh, tell this a little in a little more detail as to what is sure. this? Uh, 
uh, form of rainwater harvesting. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. So um, uh, if you've seen Thar Desert or people uh, who, who might have seen the Thar Desert, uh, you know, you'll know what I'm talking about. But for those who haven't, um, the Thar is a very young desert and, a high, and, and the world's most populated desert. It's uh, mostly in the Indian uh, state of Rajasthan. And it uh, uh, it flows over into Sindh in Punjab in um, Pakistan as well. Um, this desert uh, has um, an ancient um, practice of catching uh, rainwater that falls on the land. It rains there for maybe one day in a year, and uh, it's less than. Um, the whole year's rain is less than four inches. It's 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 just about hundred mm, ten centimeters of rain, um, and so they catch that. What happens is uh, there's a slight. They they identify places in uh, the desert which have a slight slope. The slope is about one foot over one kilometer. So it's really tiny and very gradual slope. And it's a smooth slope. It's not uh, sand, so it's not uh, permeable as much. So when the rain falls on this, this is treated as a catchment. Mm, when the rain falls on this area, it rolls down that slope. And at the bottom, what these uh, shepherds do is they collect the thorny bushes and they make a kind of bund. You know, at the at the at one edge of the uh, edge of the slope, and uh, as and then they wait for the sandstorms to come. Before the rain comes, the sandstorms. So when the sandstorms come, the sand accumulates. It gets caught among those thorny bushes, and it builds this bund. They fortify this bund slightly, maybe, or they just leave it as is, and then they wait for the rain. So when the rain comes and falls on this impermeable surface, the rain rolls down, and it collects in this now man-made kind of depression. And um, and that water, then um, it's it it's this whole area is called a kadeen, k h a d e e n kadeen, and uh, that water then seeps down slowly over three months into the um, into the land, and uh, after it is seeped, the uh, shepherds they till that land and they sow um, wheat, they sow. Uh, guar bean, they sow, you know, herbs, they sow all kinds of things. And, um, and within uh, three, so this, this happens, the sowing happens in, in like November, and, um, and then they reap it in like February. And, uh, and so it's completely rain fed. The other thing is that all along this catchment area, uh, since these people are shepherds, they, um, they walk with their flock of uh, sheep and goats. And so there's a lot of droppings, which then also rolls down with the rain. And that serves as fantastic manure. So you have this very, very fertile oasis catchment. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's everything. It's, uh, it's, it's an amazing water structure, which then um, becomes a food bowl for villages. All the villages around, um, they have parts of this kadeen. And so they partake in the, in the feast. And uh, this is an age also 700, 800 years ago, the Palival Brahmins used to use this, um, uh, this method of rain-fed agriculture, the rainwater harvesting, um, for uh, becoming extremely rich. They were very, very rich people. They were merchants. And um, uh, these the people today, uh, they have just gone back. Some of these kadeens are 700 years old, and some of them are newer, and they've been made new newly. 
And uh, a lot of people adopting it have gone from uh, being in abject poverty to, to being, uh, you know, karorpatis as they call it in India, um, because of this agriculture. So it's a fascinating story and it's beautifully self-sufficient. It's got nothing, there's no added, there's no mining of water. There's no channeling of water. There's no canals, um, you know, from the Himalayas diverted to, none of that is needed. This is just the rain that falls on the land that is harvested and, uh, and used for agriculture. In other places, in other uh, parts of the thing, they also use this in, in lakes for uh, drinking water. And then once the water seeps down uh, and dries up, it actually, it, it's, uh, they, they build percolation wells. So they hand dig these wells. And since the water is so saturated, I mean, the, the land around is so saturated, uh, these wells pull uh, the water through and you know, as you pull up water, it keeps percolating. And these wells then last for the next eight months, eight to nine months. So two months or two to three months of lake water, and then they have the eight to nine months of this. So you have a full year of water until the next rain, one day of rain. So, I mean, it's just, I was just fascinated. I went there and I realized that, okay, I'm not going to be able to tell the story in one trip. And I went back every month for a year so I could see all the changes that are happening. And um, eventually, I think it was almost 15 months, um, you know, and then I could tell, I could begin to tell the story. And it was fascinating. Wow. Yeah. It reminds me of all these things that we write in our papers, looking at historical documents, looking at Bangalore and say, you know, like, yes, there was, yes. there was rain, you know, tapping into elevation gradients of the city, rainwater being collected, recharge, recharging shallow wells, aquifers, and so on. And then, and then, you know, providing year-round water supply to a semi-arid or arid landscape. Um, but I'm just going back to something else you were talking about in terms of storytelling um, and how a lot of what we do is... Um, you know, really, we cannot look at snapshots in time. And that's one of these things that we keep hearing as uh, academic scholars as well, right? That you cannot look at landscapes as snapshots in time, that you need to have a more uh, temporal outlook towards things. And that in some ways, academia needs to go beyond, beyond uh, these single elements or whatever of, of whatever it is that we are studying into storytelling. Uh, and I was just wondering whether you had any thoughts on on that because you're working with academics as well, um, and some directions that you know that have helped you. Whether it has created the impact that we keep talking as academics that you know you need to have storytelling, but has it you know helped in some way or what would need what would be needed to create change in some way through these things. Uh, so, so the people I work with, uh, many of them are really good storytellers. I mean, like you guys, Harni and, and all of you guys as well. So, uh, I mean, you're already good storytellers. Um, and I think, I think I'm just coming in, uh, you know, with, uh, from the cold, but, you know, trying to connect dots. So, you know, kind of seeing what you know, uh, what you've seen, but also then going and seeing how it uh, manifests on the landscape itself. Um, you know, this, this longitudinal, taking the longitudinal look um, and the systems thinking and all this jargon that we, you know, throw out there, I feel that it's, it's really important because, um, it, you know, it's, it, I feel very often, and this is completely only from 
me talking to people that I'm making these uh, these comments. It's it's probably you no. Know, I don't know if it's going to bear out or not. Um, but I feel that everybody is working in silos. And uh, you know, how often does a hydrologist talk to a wildlife biologist? Mm-hmm. How often does a um, does a politician talk to talk to a hydrologist? How often does a hydrologist talk to the engineer? You know, and uh, or, or the public health. Uh, guy, you know, all those things, it's people are all see, they seem to be working in silos, it is getting, it's working, um, it's getting better in some places, I know some fantastic people who are doing cross uh, disciplinary work in, uh, in Bangalore, and I mean, they're based in Bangalore, but then they're doing field work elsewhere. Uh, And those kinds of, uh, you know, breaking down those silos and speaking to each other, um, and, and, and seeing uh, what each other, I mean, seeing their point of view, right? The social, um, the social stories as well as the scientific stories, and then you know you you have to see both sides of, um, not both sides. It's not both sides, but it's you know to see the full picture rather. You know, how does it affect livelihood? How is it affecting people that live there? How is it affecting um, the land itself? You know, so so to to kind of uh, broaden your uh, focus, maybe uh, kind of take off the blinkers and and look just to make those connections. I think that's, um, that's so paramount. It's, it's really important. Um, and also, uh, you know, not, uh, you know, not, not be kind of high handed in that I feel that even the indigenous people, the people who live in those landscapes have a lot to share. So even listening to them, and th- that knowledge needs to be a big part of the discourse as well. And I feel sometimes I see that uh, being subverted maybe uh, by by academia. Um, and, and again, this is an outsider's point of view. I mean, you know, I know you speak to academics, so maybe I'm going to get a lot of flack for saying that. But um, I feel that you know it would be lovely to see uh, or to take that indigenous those indigenous voices and the the local um, experiences into consideration. Um, you know, when you're doing your research or doing, when I'm doing my storytelling, for example, I can't only listen to the, to the scientists. Um, in fact, if I only listened to the scientists and went to a place like Thar, I would not even see what I saw, you know, because that's not what, what, what the scientists and the engineers have done in the Thar is to bring the Indra Gandhi Canal, which is Himalayan water all the way to the desert, which is a complete disaster. Uh, but, uh, you know, you listen to the local guys, you listen to the shepherds, you walk with the shepherds and you see a completely different point of view, right? So, um, so yeah, I think breaking silos down, um, collaborating, talking, speaking, trying to figure out different ways to tell stories beyond academic uh, publications, uh, beyond English language uh, newspapers, you know, or, or even newspapers. Other, there are other, so many other ways people can listen to, you know, people learn through music, people learn through theater, people learn through art. There's so many different ways that we can communicate stories. And I feel there's not enough collaboration going on and it would be lovely, lovely to collaborate, um, you know, across boundaries um, and, and across, across political boundaries as well, because rivers are not, um, static, they don't live within countries, they do cross boundaries. And we know in South Asia, for example, Bangladesh, India, China, Nepal, Bhutan, all of that, right? I mean, that's the area I work in, so that's what I'm talking about, But or Indus on this side. Um, you know, we really, really need to, I think, you know, kind of just break down these silos. 
Arati, building on something you just said about the relationship between academia, scientists, and local folks, I mean, this is something in the commons field we think about a lot. What do you think prevents someone coming from the outside from taking seriously and genuinely engaging with local folks and trying to understand their point of view? If you're, I mean, you, you, after you talked about, you said, I was, I was very um, interested in this word subverted and, 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 and then yes. you said, well, maybe we don't, we don't want to go there, but, but. <laughs> okay. So personal experience alone. I mean, I've met wonderful people who do listen to the local people and I love working with them. And so mm. I'm not talking about those guys. Okay. But I am talking about a large part of, uh, of academia who have also heard, and I try and I, I don't tend to work with those people as much, but there's a lot of, I would, I would probably sum it up in one word, hubris. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I feel there's this thing of, you know, we know, we know better. And, you know, the, it, it's, it's just a question of, I think, um, some amount of hu- approaching these questions with some amount of humility and, uh, and, and admitting maybe that we don't have all the answers yet. And, and maybe somebody else through lived experience has something that we can learn. Um, and, uh, and I feel that that, especially, you know, even when you look at uh, how, you know, the, the Native Americans, for example, um, you know, when they speak, uh, when they talk about things and how they do agriculture, for example, or even just you know, you, you even hear the people in the Thar and how they do agriculture. It's so different from modern agriculture, right? And it's so suited to that place. That's the other thing, you know, it's some of these things are so localized and the local geographies become really important. Um, and who best knows those local geographies than the people that live there? And, you know, they kind of know the lay of the land. They know how it works, or at least they used to. There is a large, um, I would say, um, you know, it's, there's a loss of a lot of that knowledge with with uh, generations, but traditionally, that that kind of how you how you use the land and how you live in the, live on the land and what you can do to to survive there um, and and the local geographies, we tend to lose that when we come from a bookish um, you know thing. And in India, at least when you look at how policy is made or when engineering is applied we seem to think what works in Europe would work in India. And some of those applications, it's kind of maybe a hangover from the colonial uh, days, um, but still rife and still very much alive in India. Um, those, that thinking has been, uh, has caused so many of the problems that we're seeing today in India. So again, you know, I feel that the stress on local geographies and local land, local knowledge um, I think is, is, is really, we need to listen more, I feel. Yeah, you remind me of an experience I had, which made me realize just how kind of unaware I am of a lot of the landscapes that I move through. So I do a lot of biking where I'm from in New Hampshire, and that's actually a pretty wonderful way to get to know a landscape. But I was biking with a friend and he started talking about these different families who have lived in the area for a long time and have these histories. And it made me realize just how oblivious I was and still am to the social landscape where I was spending hundreds of hours recreationally. 
And I think it's one of these things that the less you know, the less you, how do you say this? You don't know what you don't know, right? The more ignorant you are, the less you know you're ignorant. And so a lot of us are so much, and I'm speaking for myself, um, you get so divorced from localities that you forget that of what it would feel like to be connected and know about geography and so the importance true. of context. So true, so true. And there are so many instances of that, right? Like in Bangalore, where I live, if you were to look at the landscape, the landscapers, the urban landscapers and how they approach landscaping, it is so far removed from <laughs> the kind of local, uh, you know, our flora fauna and stuff like that. <laughs> like, you know, these manicured lawns and palm trees and uh, God knows what else, but you know, all that uh, stuff. And you realize that, you know, or, or even tourism, right? When you go as a tourist, um, for example, in the Sundarbans, I know so many people who've gone to the Sundarbans but have got zero, have come back with absolutely no knowledge of the people that live there. They've gone there, they've gone on a boat to look for tigers, they've gone, gotten off the boat and gone into a resort and come back, gotten on the boat, gone look for tigers, come back and driven to Calcutta and flown back to wherever they were from. And they just do not interact with what's, uh, you know, the other side of that landscape, which is treacherous and hard. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's brutal almost, you know, and uh, there's politics and there's all kinds of things, right? Which, uh, which as a tourist, people just don't, they don't really engage with at all. And, uh, and, 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 and it's, uh, you're cocooned. You never get out of your cocoon. And that I feel is a, is a, is a huge loss, I think, in terms of even, um, you know, just life. We're, we're, we're kidding ourselves. We're uh, mm -hmm. pretending that we understand things. But, and, and that's why, you know, I feel that, like you said, you know, cycling, walking through landscapes, moving through it at a, at a human pace of life, where you're feeling the, the, the land with your feet, with your skin, with your, uh, with your eyes, ears, all your senses, right? Uh, rather than zooming through in an air-conditioned car. It's so different how you experience a landscape when you're driving through it versus when you're out there with the elements and, you know, kind of uh, feeling, feeling every part of the landscape. And that's how these people live. And if we don't understand that, we're never going to be able to, uh, you know, approach even how life might be over there and what might be ways to solve issues that might come up. Mm -hmm. So, Rati, about your about your work itself i'm interested in how much you think about who your audience is and what effects you want to have on them what effects maybe you want to have on different types of folks that might be looking at it what types of emotions you're trying to evoke is it because it's you're you know looking at some of it there's there, you're talking about challenges and there's a narrative and one of the things that I've become interested in in the last 10 years in the field of environmental communication is the dynamics between kind of hope and despair. And one of the things that I've struggled with in the climate change discourse space is how often the you know, new news is always bad news. It's always worse than we thought it was going to be. And, I, and, and that feels like, and I know that science communicators have struggled with this in the climate change space because it's from their perspective, well, things are bad. We need to communicate this. 
and then you confront this avoidance and denial mechanism from other people where they say, well, okay, it's bad, but I don't know what to do. And so I'm interested in your thoughts on just to repeat it, who you're, who you're kind of speaking to and what types of effects emotionally or maybe behaviorally you're hoping to have on them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wish I had a, had an intelligent answer for you. <laughs> I really don't. When I, when I go to, um, go to, go to these places and I start listening to, to the people who live there and, you know, their experiences, I, I, I do get a sense of uh, what kind of story might be emerging. And um, I try my level best to, to be true to what I'm hearing, right? Uh, rather than what preconceived notions I might have gone in with, hmm? in spite of doing research and all of that. Uh, it's, so, so when I write um, or when I shoot and when I shoot, uh, it's really how, how it has been told to me, how these things have come across to me. So of course it's through my lens. Of course it's through, you know, whatever, whatever colored lenses I'm wearing, but it's, it's as much as I can what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing from, um, uh, you know, from living or being in that, in that area. Um, so I'm hoping to just convey using all my senses, what that landscape feels like and what the people who live there go through. And I'm hoping that in telling it that way, as true to all my sense of five senses uh, as I can be, um, that my reader or my viewer will get a sense of what it might have been like, right? So I do not have a particular feeling that I want people to come away with other than at least for a bit being transported is too big a bigger word, but you know, just to feel what it was like, you know, there. So if, it, and so far, much more when I speak to people, when I actually have, you know, if I'm speaking uh, to, an, uh, to a live audience um, or, uh, or even a virtual audience like this, much more when I speak, I don't know how it comes across when I read, though, you know, I have to depend upon what people tell me. Um, but I feel that it seems to get across, you know, it seems to get across uh, just, just, how I feel gets across. That's, that's, I can, that's all I can say. Now, beyond that, what, I, what I'm hoping that they will take away from it is a sense of um, the fact that we are not separate from what's happening. That what's happening is very much, uh, it, it affects us and we affect it, you know? Um, and, and so that, that sense of not being other um, is something that I really, 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 really want to want people to come away with. And we aren't other. I mean, there's, it's, there's no fabrication here. I mean, it's, it's silly to believe that we are going to be somehow exempt from whatever's happening in the rest of the world. So um, it's, it's that kind of uh, the shared, uh, you know, reality, shared future that we have 
uh, that that I feel I, I really want to convey. In terms of hope and despair, it's really interesting. The people I meet, um, they give me so much hope because they have a completely different take on it. Of course, they, they see what's happening. They see devastation and all of that. But the way they approach uh, things, it's, it's much more, um, uh, you know, can do. Like for example, when, um, when I was in Ladakh and, uh, you know, I met these people who are building these ice stupas because there's no water, all the, the, the glaciers are receding and um, there's no water in springtime for fields and uh, summer, springtime and summer for fields, which is when they need the water the most. And these guys are building these ice stupas. The mountain people have a minuscule footprint, uh, carbon footprint, and yet it's they who are suffering and they who have to take these, you know, um, steps. But they're doing it, you know. It's like we need to survive, and we're going to do whatever it takes to survive. And so they're out there just solving those problems and in their own way and and whatever it takes for them to live and and uh, you know similarly i people i meet in assam or people i meet in um, uh, bihar i feel so often that um, the despair should have been abject over there but i see them trying really hard to make things happen and uh, I come away with always. I always come away with a sense of I'm no one to complain. I cannot. I cannot ever complain about anything, right? Um, it's. It's. We just have to do the right thing, and so that's the other thing that I feel. I really would love for people to do, uh, is to just kind of do the right thing over the easy thing, but I know that it's also it's it's hard, um, and. I haven't seen any success in in those things, but uh, uh, it's 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 a hard one. I I can't say that my work has seen impact or anything like that, other than maybe just getting people to care a little bit more. Well, yeah, I would say that there's something I'd say to students, and I think I'd need to say it to myself as well: is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good right? We, we often get obsessed with, oh, this perfect image or this ideal that we need to reach. And some disciplines are founded on that. And what we need to think about is how do, you know, how do we get tomorrow to be a little bit less bad or a little bit more good than today? I, I know I saw some important person give a talk that said that. I just can't remember who that was, but. Yeah, no, I, I was listening to what you were just saying, Arti, and I was, uh, I was also reminded of some other experience that I had. Um, at a talk organized by the Royal Geographical Society. Um, it was one of those serendipitous things where you're invited because you're early to something else uh, and they have no idea what to do with you. And they tell you, okay, here's a talk. Do you want to listen to it? <laughs> you know, um, and I remember going into this uh, talk where there were two white women uh, who had worked on sacred traditions of Africa. Uh, and uh, the talk was about their work. They had just released a new volume of whatever their book was called. Um, I think it was called Sacred Traditions of Africa. Not, I think it's, it was an encyclopedia, but I think one of them was British, one of them was Spanish, I think, I'm not sure. sure. Um, and these people were talking about their experiences in doing this. And 
why I got reminded of it really was also because you mentioned this idea of the other. Um, and I remember sitting in this room, it was, it was a very surreal experience. There were like 20, 30 members of the audience. I was the only brown person sitting in there. Um, so entirely white audience, uh, two white women discussing a country, uh, discussing their tradition, their, their experiences of chronicling the traditions of country that they've gone into. Um, and then using phrases such as the, chi the local chieftain came to me and asked me to be a custodian of their culture and having this bunch of 20 people applaud. Uh, and I was remember, I, mean, I was just thinking, am I the only person sitting here appalled at this whole thing, listening to a group of people creating a narrative of them versus us, while at the same time, here's this wonderful piece of chronicling, so to speak. So the videos that they had taken of the customs and traditions that they were documenting were fantastic. But woven into that was this whole narrative of, it, it, I mean, it reminded me of going back to these colonial archives that I sit and pour over every day and seeing how the British described Indians, um, you know, during the colonial period, the natives did this and the natives did that. The word natives was missing, but everything else was there. And then I was just thinking when we go in, uh, when, uh, in your case, and you go in as a chronicler into these landscapes, in a certain sense, you are the other two because you are not part of that landscape. But at the same time, you're striving to bring their voices out uh, in a way that, again, does not reflect your hubris as a person more privileged uh, with the access to those things. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that no, 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 no. It's a question that I deal with every single day of my, my working life because it is, right? I mean, just like you said, just because I'm Indian, that doesn't mean that I can go to places in India and be, uh, be one of them. No, not happening, right? I'm still very much the other when it comes to a lot of these, uh, lot of these things. And I'm acutely aware of my privilege as, um, as who I am, right? I may not be, I may not be um, white, but I am still extremely privileged. And uh, when I go into these places, I know how they look at me, right? They don't consider me as one of them. So for example, in so many of these uh, places where I go, the way they would treat a woman who is part of their community is extremely different from the way they treat me. Right. So I know I can see that. And I, I do carry my I, I'm acutely aware of my privilege and I cannot I cannot negate that in any way and I cannot excuse that in any way. Um, but I am very, very aware of the fact that uh, when I step into these places, um, things can things can be told to me because of who I am. Right. And so the one way that I feel has worked, um, I don't know whether it has worked, worked, but at least that seems to alleviate some of this is to spend time. So when I, when they seem to realize, okay, she's not going anywhere. She's not just come to listen to sound bites and go away with them. Um, they seem to drop that kind of, that guard, you know, or, or that, that kind of facade really. And, uh, and I just sit for hours. I mean, there are so many afternoons where I'm supposed to be working, but I can't work because they're having endless cups of tea or, you know, they're talking about the price of camels or, uh, you know, how the fish was in 
fish catch was or whatever, right? And uh, who am I to impose my agenda on that afternoon, right? So, so very, very often I'm just there, you know, and they seem, I seem to fade after a while. People don't really pay me much mind, which is really when, um, and it's always better if you understand the language and you don't need a translator. So I've been trying to learn Bengali, for example, right? And uh, so it's, and I can understand. So now I know when they're talking, I know what they're talking about. I'm not fluent in it. I make a mess, a hash completely when I try to speak, but uh, I'm able to spend a week without a translator in the Sundarbans and, you know, get along just fine and understand things. So um, that helps, but um yeah, you know, it's, uh, what can you do? It's uh, other than being very aware and, uh, and sensitive uh, about what and how you present things. Um, it's, it's really important that both the, um, the imposition of thought that is a city person's thought uh, or a privileged person's thought over uh, what their lifestyle is um, doesn't happen. I mean, in so many cases, I can think of so many cases when, where people can, and I, and I know that uh, these cases, I know these cases because when I come back and tell these stories, those are the questions I get. So I know that, you know, that's the, the city thinking. Like, for example, um, talking about how women who have to go to uh, a well to collect water and come back saves uh, uh, how they could get, how their uh, time would be saved if we had piped water to them and uh, things like that, right? I mean, it's a very simple thing. And everybody would say, if you look at a lady with a, a pot on her uh, head, uh, you know, there's just so many thoughts that come across, right? Oh my God, she might, that if she's young, then why, why isn't she going to school? Blah, 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 all kinds of things, right? And um, I realized when I was there and I went with these women to fetch water, uh, this is this was not far, okay? This is not one of those things where you have to walk 16 kilometers for water in this heat of day. This is not that. This is just a village well. Um, but when they go to get the water, um, it's for them the only time, two times in the day that they get to get out of their houses. It's the only two times in the day that they get to meet their friends. It's the only two times in the day that they get to sing songs, exchange stories, and relax. They're not having to make 40 rotis for their menfolk, right? So um, I saw a very different perspective and that whole thing of, oh, but they could have saved time with the uh, piped water. It's almost like they won't get to go anywhere if you, you know? So it's it, you, sometimes you just don't see some of these things when, coming from the, the, you know, with the, the background that we're, we're uh, coming from. And so some of these things, you know, I, I realized that it's, uh, it's very important to just kind of observe, listen, observe, and just not have, not, not try to pretend that you know better. And the same thing in the Northeast with, with all the hunting, right. And, uh, and all kinds of uh, different rituals that are, that are there. Um, I, I mean, who are we to tell them what is better than something else, right? So it's just, um, it's hard uh, to, to not be preachy, um, especially in the kind of work, I mean, when you're writing and things like that. Um, 
but you can't you can't be preach it's it's uh, it just takes away from what is and what can be if you're imposing one way of life over another because there isn't just that one way of living and in fact in many ways uh, sometimes you know it behooves us to take um, a page out of what they are and they they believe in or what they're how they're living for example and many of these places that i go to all of these people have such tiny carbon footprints such so they, they tread so lightly on the earth um, that uh, you know just just my own lifestyle here in bangalore would blow them out of the water right and it's uh, I'm just very aware of that. And I know, I know, I know about this privilege thing. It's like, it, it rankles. You know why, what, what rankles? I come away from landscapes of, of devastation and I come back to a house with three meals, a roof over my head, flowing water, hot water. Um, you know, sometimes I come straight back into a social gathering where everybody is laughing and dancing. It's so, so hard to reconcile the fact that, you know, I am telling a story of somebody and then this is my lifestyle on the other hand. So I struggle, I struggle. I sometimes come back with, you know, close to some kind of trauma, um, just being in these landscapes and seeing what people are going through and then being thrown into a mix, which is so removed from, from that, uh, that, that I've seen. Um, it's damn hard. It's very hard to reconcile that and, uh, and kind of just stay, stay centered in, um, you know, within myself to, to be able to even tell those stories. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you, you kind of tend to um, maybe overcompensate uh, knowing that you, you are so privileged. Um, I hope, I really hope that the people that I go meet in these landscapes, um, you know, um, don't feel, don't feel that I, I mean, I hope they, they, they realize where, um, you know, where I'm coming from and, um, and why I'm doing what I'm doing. They seem to, they, that's why we sit, we have some wonderful conversations. They seem to, but yes, you know, it's, it's hard because many of them also feel that things will get all right if they tell the story to me. And I have to make sure that I tell them that there isn't any such light at the end of the tunnel. Just because I'm telling you a story doesn't mean everything's going to get all right. You know, they think I might go and, you know, the government's suddenly going to change everything and that's not going to happen. So, yeah, I'm just very honest upfront with them, tell them what I can and cannot do. Um, and uh, yes, definitely being other is, is very much there, but um, I think they do see me as an ally. I hope that that's, that happens and that stays for uh, for as long as I want to do this work. Um, yeah. yeah, I think I rambled a bit over that. Sorry. No, no, it was wonderful. Yeah, I was just listening to that and I realized that was one of the earliest lessons I learned. Never tell people that, you know, or never act like, you know, better than what people are telling you. Because yeah. I remember going into these, you know, fields where shepherds were grazing their cattle in Bangalore mm -hmm. and... Uh, like 60 plus 70 plus year old men uh, asking them questions about how they managed the lake in the past, what memories they have. And then hearing things like 20 years ago, you would not be standing looking at me like this. You would be covering your head, eyes down before you address men folk. And I used to be outraged. I'm like, no, 21st century woman, I'm not doing that. 
<laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. But then in a certain sense, that's that's their way of life. That's that's what they've known. That's uh, who am I to go and impose a lesson on patriarchy to them, right? As much as I'd like to. <laughs> but no, I was also talking of patriarchy. I was also wondering a lot of these uh, experiences that you describe involve you going to different places, um, spending time with communities um, and uh, documenting their stories over long periods of time. How did you deal with that on a personal level in terms of, in terms of you know, all the expectations that our gender has with us? Expectations from the people I go meet or the people I'm now coming? No, the, the people you come back to pretty much, ha. home, family. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I've been very lucky to have an extremely wonderful family. Uh, my parents never stopped me from exploring right from when I was little. So that's that's huge. Um, and uh, husband and kid too seem to uh, seem to buy into uh, to this whole lifestyle of mine. They do worry because sometimes I'm out of network uh, coverage and they can't even reach me for like two weeks and they don't know. They're like, okay, if mom doesn't you know, call us at the end of these two weeks, we'd have to do something, you know, that kind of stuff. But other than that, no, I've been lucky with that. The only thing that riles me, and it riles me like hell, is that I have a daughter, and uh, she's now 20. But um, I have been working since now, I've been working since 2013 now. So it's, it's been about nine years. So she was, she was about 11. Uh, I used to take her with me to field as well sometimes, but sometimes she would stay back and Sanat would, so we, we, uh, Sanat would also travel a lot. My husband would travel a lot. So um, we take turns traveling so that one of us is always at home. He never got asked, well, who's going to take care of your daughter if you travel? I always got asked, who's going to get take care of your daughter when you travel? Always. My closest friends would tell me, I don't know how you do it. I care too much about my family to do what you do, as if I didn't. I mean, you know, the, the subtle, the subtle arrows that you just go strike me, you know, like, and uh, and it's funny because you know they they thought they were being supportive, but uh, you could tell from from you know comments and stuff like that that patriarchy is rife in so many different ways, and and among people who think themselves not patriarchal even you know yeah. so uh, yeah so that's I think those things riled me more uh, the, the the fact that my husband who travels a lot was treated extremely differently from me um, but uh, I I began to reconcile uh, things and then kind of I think I started not caring not not defending myself and that started helping and now I don't get that as much I do get it a bit still. There are some people who still say it, but I don't get that as much. So, uh, you know, I think it's just, they've either given up on me and you kind of thought of I'm a lost case or they've probably understood, you know, what it is that, um, that mm. I do. Yeah, I remember getting the my PhD, I think one day before I got my PhD, uh, the degree itself, um, I remember having this conversation, you know, very excited, five years, got my PhD, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then someone telling me, great, now you learn how to make round rotis. <laughs> and, and that was quickly followed with, that's great, PhD is all all right, but uh, remember family first. And I'm like, uh, that's really not something I wanted to hear today, but 
anyway. Ito, what was the first thing? How to make what? Round rotis, round chapatis, you know, the, okay. the flatbread that we have. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, brother. Yeah. <laughs> so no, totally get it. Speaking of round rotis, though, I wanted to, you know, you just reminded me, may I tell a small story? Also patriarchy. Of course. Um, in, in the Taj, uh, when I was uh, hanging with the shepherds, uh, there was a point at which uh, we were all out in the desert. Um, it was like open air and they built a little fire and uh, we were having a meal there. Of course, the ladies were making the rotis and I was sitting with the ladies and, uh, you know, it's so easy in what I do to only sit with the men and only hear the men mm-hmm. because they're always the ones that are speaking. And so I have to make a special effort to go sit with the women. So this is one of those times I was sitting with them and I was chatting with the lady who was making rotis and she was making 160 that afternoon. She made 160 rotis and uh, which are these round breads. And uh, I asked her, I asked her what her favorite food was and she didn't answer. Then I asked her, what would you cook if it wasn't for your family? What would you cook for yourself? And she looked at me and she did not know, she did not understand the question. And I realized that nobody had ever asked her what she liked. She had never thought of it. She'd never, it never even crossed her mind. And she kept answering, saying, whatever they tell me to. I said, no, they're not telling you to make anything. What would you make for yourself? Whatever they would tell me to, you know? Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, the patriarchy is at so many levels and so deep, so deep, so deep, so deep. We have a very long way to go to, <laughs> to kind of even chip away at it. Yeah, 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 totally get it. I mean, it, it's all, it's all as women, that's all we're taught, right? I mean, how is it that, uh, you keep everyone around you happy, you know, I mean, forget anything that you have for yourself. Um, yep. Yeah, it, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, if your husband places his leftover food in the bedroom and doesn't wash it for ages, your act of picking it and putting it in the damn sink becomes an act of love. Of course. <laughs> Uh, but of course, it's not an act of love if you do the same thing. Like if you leave your plate, then heaven. <laughs> no, doesn't work. <laughs> but thanks so much. I mean, this was this is fun. I yeah, I just wanted to ask you: Is there something else that you'd like to share with us? You know, about your work and things that motivate you. Um, and terms of final thoughts. Um. No, I mean, I guess uh, if if anyone's listening to this. Uh, I would encourage people to tell long-term stories, to follow stories over time, because it's uh, important that we do. It's important to pay attention to not just the flavor of the month, but to, um, to, to, to things that are happening, um, you know, and, and, and you know, just, just keep going back to places, going back to uh, landscapes, seeing things, um, listening, listening a lot. Uh, it's, we really, really in India, especially South Asia, in so many ways, not just environment, right? So many ways we need to do long-term, long-form documentation of, uh, of all that's happening. And so there's a lot of need for that. Yes, and I, and I realize that funding is very hard to come by, very, very hard to come by. So you don't have to go far 
I would suggest that you just do that kind of documentation in your backyard. Stories are everywhere. And, uh, you know, just put on a pair of walking shoes, walk in your community and start documenting. There's going to be probably, if it's environment, there's probably going to be a lake or a garden or a you know, a huge tree that's being cut or whatever, right? Um, la landscapes are changing all the time and uh, mostly for the worse, but but do do that kind of long-term documentation and uh, it'll it'll really help us, I think, you know, chronicle our, our own times. It's important. Yeah, thanks so much, Aarti. This was wonderful. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, guys. It's been interesting talking. I hope it was, it's useful. That was terrific. Thank you for listening, everyone. You can find more episodes as well as our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. In Common is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or the IASC.